Thanks, Vince. Um, if you have a Bible, pull it out. If you need a Bible, slip your hand up. If you don't have one on your phone or you forgot yours at home, somebody will give you a Bible if you're new or if you need one because we are going to be in the book of Mark and we're going to be jumping in a couple different passages and not all of them will be on the screen. So you're going to want to have um, a copy of the scriptures in front of you to follow along this morning. I do have some Peoria people in the house. Yeah, fellas, how about that? They're up here for a bachelor party, and they didn't know I was going to be preaching, and then they just happened to walk in, so good to see you all. They're beautiful men over there. Um, yes. Uh, Mark chapter 1, open up to Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It was read already. I'm going to read it again really quickly just to remind us of where we're going, and then I'm going to pray, and we will jump in. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Let's pray. Father, we pray um, this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts. God, that you would help us hear what you want us to hear, that we would see what you want us to see through the power of your spirit as we listen to your word. God, help us transform us, shape us to look more like Jesus. I pray you would keep us awake this morning, you would keep us engaged this morning, that we would walk out as different people than when we walked in. Spirit, we need you to do that. We trust you and expect you to do that. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, um, as Vince mentioned, I'm one of the pastors at Redemption Peoria, which I think is the closest congregation to Flagstaff distance-wise. I'm pretty sure it's close between Peoria and Alhambra. Um, Peoria is in Phoenix, the west side of Phoenix. But even when my wife and I got up this morning to drive up here, I was thinking if I was at any other redemption congregation, it would take me much longer because we're pretty quick to the 17 and it's a, a straight shot up. So um, thankful to be here with you as part of the redemption family. Uh, here's where we're going to go. Today, we're going to talk um, and give some context of what Vince just mentioned, this new series that we're in, The Praying God. What has that been like? Maybe if you missed last week, I want to catch you up to speed on that. We're going to look specifically at the chapter of Mark 1 and hone in on that verse I just read, verse 35, actually 35, 36, 37, and 38. Then through that, we're going to talk about Jesus's posture of dependence on the Father, that he had a life that was a continual posture of dependence to his father. And I want to suggest two reasons for that. One has to do with his necessity in prayer, and one has to do with his identity in prayer. And then we'll close. So if you missed last week, or if you haven't been in a couple weeks to church, and you're from Redemption, you've been here for a while, you might be a little confused because we're not opening up to the book of Ephesians, um, which we did for 40 weeks. 40 weeks of six chapters of a book of the Bible we studied on Sunday, the book of Ephesians. And if you were like me or some of my brothers and sisters at Peoria, we're about to have Thanksgiving meal, right? I love Thanksgiving, love the turkey, mashed potatoes. It's just so good. And it's not food I normally eat. So when I get to eat Thanksgiving food, like I really, really enjoy it. But you know, at the end of your Thanksgiving meal, and it's like there's still food left and you're like... It's so good still, but I, I, can't, I, I physically can't take another bite. That's how I feel about Ephesians. I just got to be real with you, man. Like, I'm just, we went to a conference. Some of us, the Redemption Pastors, went to a conference. Vince and Anthony were with us in Chicago a couple weeks ago. 
And they had these little mini sermonettes before the main speaker, these 10-minute sermons. And you know what they all did? Ephesians. Everyone was in Ephesians. And we were all in the back like, oh, I don't know if we can do it. Ah. I was with my 15-year-old son last week, and we were talking about church. and the ser- how, how was the service for you? And the first words out of his mouth were, I'm just so glad we're out of Ephesians. I said, okay, I am too. So not that Ephesians was terrible. It was actually really, really rich for us. We loved it. But um, at least for us and hopefully for you, you feel refreshed to begin to dive into another part of the Bible um, in the next four weeks, including today. So Vince already mentioned it there. uh, We are in a series called The Praying God. And last week, he unrolled this heart and this idea that these five weeks would help us at Flagstaff be a community that would be consistent in our rhythm and our exercise of dependence on the Father. And that would be through prayer. So the way we are going to do that is we are going to look specifically at the life of Jesus, how he prayed, when he prayed, why he prayed. And so today we're going to be talking specifically, my task is to answer that question. Why did Jesus pray? Next week we'll look at how he prayed, then next week when he prayed and what he prayed. And so our hope is as we examine the life of Jesus, we'll get a better picture of what it looks like to be in perfect communion with our Father through prayer. And the first question we need to ask, even before getting to the question, why did Jesus pray? Well, like, where does he even show up in the Gospels, the narrative, the eyewitness accounts in our Bible of Jesus? Where does it show up, this intersection of Jesus' life and his ministry with prayer, this discipline of prayer? Let me name a few from the top before we jump into why he prayed. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He healed people with prayers. He denounced the corruption of the temple worship, which he said was supposed to be a house of prayer. He insisted that some demons be cast out only through prayer. He prayed often and regularly with fervent cries and tears, Hebrews 5 says. And sometimes he prays all through the night, as Luke 6 mentions. When he faced his greatest crisis, he did so With prayer. We hear him praying for his disciples and the church the night before he died in John chapter 17 and petitioning to God in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14. The last breath of Jesus hanging on the cross is prayer. Jesus' life and his ministry is marked by prayer, it is defined by prayer. Even in John 17, when he's talking about, I only do what the Father tells me to do. The only reason he knows what to do is because he's praying. Jesus had a deep, rich prayer life. But why did he pray? It seems a bit odd, as Vince already mentioned, because he is God. He's fully, Christians believe he is fully God and fully man. And Paul Miller, again, if if you're curious about prayer, I would just highly, highly recommend his book, which is entitled A Praying Life, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's a a really, really good book. And he says this specifically to to the question, why did Jesus pray? Listen to what he says. He says, you'd think if Jesus was the Son of God, 
he wouldn't need to pray. Or at least he wouldn't need a specific prayer time because he's uh, be in such a constant state of prayer. You'd expect him to have a direct line with his heavenly father, like broadband to heaven. At least you'd think Jesus could do a better job of tuning out the noise of the world. But surprisingly, Jesus seemed to need time with the Father just as much as we do. We want to use the backdrop of Mark chapter 1 to begin to unearth why Jesus prayed. I don't know about you, but um, I really like movies. Like really, really, really like movies. Like if I have time to do something, I'm usually checking what movies are playing when. Like it's at the level of like, does anybody go to the movies by themselves? Yeah, like I, I, I'm a by myself movie goer. Not that I don't like to go with other people, but like I, I love movies. And one of the movies franchises that I really, really enjoy is the Rocky series. Now, some of you are like, Rocky? That's a long time ago. It is. I'm old, number one. Number two, it still keeps going. Creed came out a couple years ago. Creed 2 is about to come out in a couple weeks, Thanksgiving weekend. So I love the story of Rocky. Rocky 3 is hands down my favorite where he fights Mr. T. And there's all these unbelievable montages in Rocky where he's working out and he's getting ready for the fight. And I remember as a boy watching Rocky III and I got a tape recorder. A tape recorder is a thing you put a cassette tape in and you close it. It's kind of like an iPhone back in the day. And it had a cord that attached to it and I had a microphone to my tape recorder. And we had Rocky III on VHS, on videotape. And so I put Rocky III in the VCR, and it would come up on the TV. And I would take my tape recorder with my microphone, and I would put it up to the speaker to record like the scene of the montage of like the music, and it's like the eyes of Tiger. And, it's like, and I would play it, and then I would go back to my room. And Rocky, in Rocky III, he's working out, and he has this jacket. It's a gold jacket. I only had a silver jacket, but I had a silver jacket, and it had an R for Rocky. And so I took a Sharpie, and I wrote an R on my jacket. It's funny, but it's true. And I wrote an R on my jacket, and then I would play the tape, and I would get my jump rope, and I would just get it. I'm just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I just lost the microphone. It was that exciting. So I love Love, love the Rocky films, and they have unbelievable montage in them. You just, you get fired up. The other thing the Rocky films do really, really, really well is they do a great job of character development. They build the character. And if you watch any film, if you enjoy movies, you'll notice in the first five to ten minutes of a film, the director is intentionally building the character. And I think the best example of this in Rocky is Rocky VI, Rocky Balboa. I don't consider Rocky V where he fights Tommy Gunn. I don't think that's a real Rocky. I'm just going to throw it out. It doesn't count. It's trash. Okay. But then Rocky VI, he comes back as an old man, and you're going like, this dude can't get in the ring. He's like super old. This isn't going to work. And um, you see in the first 10 minutes of the film, you're catching up with Rocky's story because it's been a, a while since we've seen him. And he's talking to this woman, and he's getting to know her, and they're chatting. And then the next day, he comes back to her house, and they're chatting again outside of her house. And as he's talking to her, he pulls out a light bulb from his jacket pocket, and he unscrews the light that's, 
that's not on outside her porch. And he kind of puts it in and he, he replaces it with a fresh light bulb. And as they're talking, and it doesn't, they don't talk about it in the movie. There's no, like, but what's happening, what the character development is doing for the director is helping you understand, like, this is a good guy. Like, look what he's doing. Like, so that at the end of the movie, what do you want to do? You want to root for Rocky. You want him to win because he's such a good guy. And so when you look at story in general, you see character development in the very beginning of the story. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. I know it's a long explanation. And you're like, I don't even know Rocky. That's ridiculous. Mark chapter 1. What I believe Mark is doing in this chapter is he is developing the character of Jesus at the beginning of his eyewitness account, at the beginning of his version of the narrative. And Mark is very fast. Out of the four Gospels, you see Mark is kind of the cliff note version of the Gospels. It's here, 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 here. And we'll see it even in chapter 1. So look down at your Bibles. I want to give a summary of chapter 1, and then we're going to stop, and we're going to look specifically, picking up in verse 35, the very beginning of Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. He is coming onto the scene. Then in verse 9, John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River, and in verse 11, it says, a voice from heaven came and said, you are my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus gets baptized. He hears this voice. We're going to come back to 11 in a minute. The next scene, he is drawn into the temptation. Jesus is drawn into the desert and is tempted. There's only two verses in Mark chapter 1. In other versions of the Gospels, there are almost entire chapters of details. But Mark is very straightforward, hits it right away. Then after that, Jesus comes out of that time, and in verse 14, it says this, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he begins his public ministry. Then verse 16, he rounds up his disciples and he says, I am going to actually make you fishers of men. You're fisher, you're, you fish, you fish fish right now, but I'm actually make you fishers of men. Verse 21, he starts healing people. He heals a man with an unclean spirit. And then verse 29, he heals Simon, who is Peter's mother-in-law. Listen to what it says in verse 29 of chapter one. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Can you imagine the scene? Now, just to give us some context, the Jewish people are waiting for a Messiah. They're waiting for this person to come onto the scene to fix everything. And now there is this person named Jesus. And John is saying, this is the guy. 
This is the guy. You guys need to pay attention because he's the one that's going to fix it all. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts healing people, starts speaking with authority. And people are going, this, I think this is it. I think this is the Messiah. The kingdom is going to come. And you just imagine that scene. The whole city is bringing people to the house to be healed by Jesus. The next morning, verse 35, says this, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place where there he prayed, verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And when he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. What I believe Jesus is doing for us in this moment is specifically when we look at prayer. Again, if you were here last week, you heard Vince start with prayer starts in Genesis 2. And I love that he did that because really prayer starts with communion with God. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see God with his creation in perfect conversation. They're walking in the cool of the garden together. There's perfect communion with Adam and Eve and the Lord. But then Genesis 3 happens, which he mentioned last week, that the first humans, they decide... They get tricked into believing that their way is better, that their way is better than God's way, and they choose to disobey God. It's the same lie we still believe today. We still think our way is better than God's way, and we want to do it how we want to do it. The Bible calls that sin. And now things are fractured. They are broken. They're not as they were originally created to be. And so prayer is included in that fracture. That the conversation with God, the comfort from God, the counsel of God is broken because of sin in our lives. But as Vince mentioned, God still provides a way. He covers up Adam and Eve with skins. He makes a sacrifice on their behalf. And actually in Genesis 2, he foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice when the Messiah is going to come and make all things right. So Jesus is now on the scene, and he's beginning to show us what it really looks like to have communion with the Father, the way it was originally created to be. And when we ask the question, why did Jesus pray? It's a pretty quick answer, in my opinion. Why did he pray? Because he loved his Father. And he was in communion with his father. But let's go underneath that a little bit. Let's dig underneath the surface of that, of like, well, why was he so dependent? Why did he love his father so much? Like, what was this dependence all about? Let me give you two reasons, I think, looking from this passage of why Jesus was dependent on the father in prayer. The first reason is this, is that Jesus realizes Jesus realizes that his wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Jesus realizes this in this moment. 
He realizes, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, that though he is walking in the flesh, he does not wage war against the flesh. Now, if you're in here, you came with somebody, you're not a Christian, you're like, what does that mean? means there's a cosmic battle that is happening from the beginning of time until eternity passed. And God and Jesus is one of the main players. And he comes onto the scene to fix the problem because there's a battle between evil and good. And so Jesus recognizes this battle very, very well. And if we as Christians don't recognize that we're actually in a battle... You know what? You're only going to pray when it's convenient. That's it. When it's easy. And Jesus realizes and he remembers that he is in a battle. He has a war mentality. So prayer for him is no longer a luxury, but prayer for him is a necessity. When you remember that you're in a battle, prayer is no longer a luxury. Prayer is now a necessity. You see it in the text, verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place and he prayed. Can you imagine how Jesus was feeling physically after the day that he just had, that we just read about? I mean, he has to be exhausted. Whether you're doing ministry with people or you're just in the lives of people with hard things, man, it is draining. You are exhausted. I imagine he woke up and he probably didn't want to stay awake. But he believes prayer is a necessity. So he is intentional to go and have time with his father. Because when we treat prayer as a a luxury, it kind of looks like, you know what, I'll pray when I can. Oh, man, I know I should pray. Man, it just didn't happen today. Like, I feel like I, the day just got away from me. And even Christians, even Christians in ministry, I feel like we do this, right? We'll put an agenda on the board at, at some of our staff meetings of, here's the stuff we need to talk through. This is what we need to get through. And what's at the very end? You know, and we're actually going to spend some time praying at the end. And then what happens? We take longer here, here, here. And then, so, oh, well, it's time. Let's, can you close this in prayer? And that's it. That's treating prayer like a luxury, not a necessity. And if we're trying to walk with Jesus, we have to remember we are in a battle. Some of you don't need to be reminded of that. Some of you are in a battle right now. We have friends personally. Just in this last week, one friend, uh, they find her sister. She's gone for 13 days She ends up killing herself. They find her body in the woods. We have another family friend, very close friend. She's pregnant with her second. She has something go wrong with her heart. She faints. The baby lives two days and dies, and she dies right after. We have another friend that just got a text from that has breast cancer, is going through chemo. Like, some of you are dealing with anxiety. Some of you are dealing with stress. And you're going, I don't need a message on a battle. I'm in a battle. I get it. And you're just praying, just help me do today. Father, just help me do today. Help me do today. I don't think I can do today, and I need to do today. Some of you are in that. But then some of us are in this room. We don't have those types of things going on. And we can easily just begin to drift into this idea of like, it's just another day. It's just, I'm just going to do today. 
And we forget, men and women, that we're in a battle, that stuff is going on, and our hearts need to be grounded in Jesus. This last week was um, it's kind of busy for my wife and I. Um, I'm a fairly early riser, so I get to bed pretty early, like somewhere in the 9 to 10 window, I'm usually asleep, which some of you are like, wow, that's crazy. But it's just true. This week wasn't like that because uh, we had some friends out of state that came over, and they're people that hang out all night. You know these people. Maybe some of you are these people. Like, we're just, we're getting it in till late, early, and it was so good, and I loved it. So they came over Tuesday night. We hung out, got a really, really rich time with them. And then the next day is uh, Halloween. So my kids are out, and we're hanging out, hanging out with family, and that's another late night. So Thursday morning comes around, and Thursday morning, my body clock wakes up at about 5, which is late for me normally. It wakes up about 5, and I'm like, man, I really want to stay in bed. I'm really tired this morning. And so I start going through my day, and I'm thinking, okay, I think I, think I could do it. I think I could move this here and move that there, and I, I think I could get another hour of sleep, and it would be glorious. Now, there's nothing wrong with sleep. Don't hear me say that. Like, God has given us a Sabbath. He actually commands it. We probably don't rest as much as we need to, but in that moment, I was kind of feeling like, you know, it's just a regular day. I think I can do it, and I, this passage came back to me, and I was like, this isn't a normal day. Like you are in a battle. Like you are in a war for your heart, for the hearts of other people. Today, even though you think it's a regular day, it's not a regular day. You have no idea what I have planned. Get up. I was like, okay, I'm going to get up. Because if I didn't get up, because if I slept, you know the first thing that went off my list? Well, I have that meeting. I definitely have to meet with that person but you know what? Like, I don't need to pray this morning or read my Bible. Like, I can, I can do that later, right? It's always like, I can do that later. And in that moment, the Lord was like, listen, it's not a normal day. You need to wake up. You need to spend time with me. I'm waiting to spend time with you. And I think we see that as we look at Genesis, or I'm sorry, if we look at Mark Verse 35, you see, Jesus rises early in the morning because he realizes that prayer is a necessity. It's not a luxury. And 1 Peter 1.3 says it this way. He says, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Be ready. Be constantly ready. Don't drift into the pattern of thinking it's just another day. I have the privilege of sharing Tuesday morning with some of the folks here in Flagstaff. Um, I'm in a seminary cohort, and Vince and Andy and Anthony and Randy are all in that morning. We get from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. We sit in Mike Goheen's living room, and we learn about things. And so we drive over. I drive over with a friend from Peoria, He's one of our pastoral residents. His name is Juan, and we drive over. It's about a 45-minute drive or so from where we are to the house in Tempe, and we get there, and we're usually there a couple minutes early, and we'll pull up, and we started this tradition going there of like, hey, let's pray. Let's pray for a day, pray for our wives or kids, things like that. 
Um, and then after like the second time, I really felt like it was kind of like, and again, I love movies, like it's kind of like, when are you outside of a house in a car, like ready to go into something? And I was like, this is kind of like if we're robbing a bank, you know? This is where my mind went. So I'm thinking like, man, we're sitting outside, we're getting ready to go in, and like if we were going to rob a bank, like we would need our guns and like our ski masks, like those would be necessities to robbing a bank. If you didn't have those things and you just walked into a bank, what are you going to, hey, hold it. Like, like you need a gun and you need a mask if you're going to do it right. At least that's what the movies tell me. So every time now, I feel like, man, let's get it in. Let's pray. We put our masks down. I'm like, okay, let's go. And then we're ready to roll, go in and learn. But now I can't not pray when I go in there because I feel like I'm walking in with no gun and no mask. And so we have to realize every day we're in a battle. We need to pray. It is a necessity. It's not a luxury. We need to wake up and we need to put our feet on the floor. We need to ask God, God, will you show up this morning? Will you work in me? Will you work through me? Help me see how to love other people well. We need to get into a habit of doing that if we're going to try and walk with Jesus. I love this quote from John Piper. He says this. He says, Prayer is the communication with the headquarters by which the weapons of warfare are deployed according to the will of God. It's, those, it's for those who are on active duty. Whether you think you're on active duty or not, if you are a Christian in here, you are on active duty. You are in a spiritual battle every day. Why did Jesus pray? The first reason, I think, is because he realized he was at war and prayer was a necessity, not a luxury. The second reason I believe Jesus prays that we see in the text here, starting in verse 36. We'll get to it in a second. But he realized that he needed to root his identity. He needed to ground himself. He needed to uh, um, anchor his identity in hearing that he was the beloved. That hearing that he was the beloved, and he only does that through prayer. In 1995, Christianity Today, which is a magazine um, published for Christians and Christian leaders, published an article by a man named Henry Nowen. And this article has massively shaped the way I think and do ministry. I would totally recommend reading it. Um, you can still just Google this title, and it'll come up right away. The title of the article was Moving from Solitude to Community to Ministry. Moving from Solitude to Community to Ministry. And in it, now in our use from Luke chapter 6, there's a similar scene. It's not the same scene, but it's a different scene where Jesus is up all night praying. He's up all night praying, and then right after he finishes praying all night with the Father, he comes down and he gathers his disciples, and then after that, they go out and they do ministry. And so uh, now one would argue, and I would agree with, that any kingdom work, any kingdom ministry needs to start with solitude, and then it moves to community, and then it moves out into ministry. But the majority of us, if we're in ministry or we're trying to lead a Bible study, we typically do ministry first. We typically do it in the reverse order. We do ministry. This is what I can do. This is my job. And then, hey, let me get some people around me. Let me gather some community. And if that doesn't work, you know what? Like, man, we should pray. Like, that would be a good idea. 
And now in our use, it has to go the other direction. And listen to what he says about this idea of solitude or prayer or being with the Father. He says this, Why is it so important that you are with God and God alone on the mountaintop? It's important because it's the place in which you can listen to the voice of the one who calls you the beloved. To pray is to listen to the one who calls you my beloved daughter, my beloved son, my beloved child. To pray is to let that voice speak to the center of your being, to your guts, and let that voice resound in your whole being. Because men and women, if we're not claiming that voice, you can't be free. You won't be free. Look at the text again, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place where he prayed, verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. You kind of get the sense of like, imagine the night before and crazy ministries happen and people are being healed. And the next morning they wake up and they're like, okay, let's go for round two, second day. Jesus is gone. Where's Jesus? Did you talk to you? Do you know where Jesus is? I don't know where he is. So they go out and they start searching for him. Almost in this anxious kind of like, Jesus, what are you doing? We have work to do. Listen, we have stuff we need to get done. How does Jesus respond? Verse 38, he said to them, let us go to the next town and preach there also, for that is why I came out. He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. It's almost like Jesus is like, Peter, I know there's a need down there. I hear you, but like I just spent time with my father, and I know exactly where we need to go. And so if we're not hearing from God in our time, if we're not praying to him, you know what's going to dictate where we go or where we don't go? It's all those other voices. It's all those other voices of all those other people. If you don't anchor yourself in being the beloved through prayer, you're going to anchor yourself in being the beloved from somewhere else. You're going to try to, and you're going to run around trying to get affirmation from other people to give you your worth. Jesus doesn't do that. Doesn't do it. He is anchored in his time with the Lord with his father. Now he knows what to do and he knows where to go. And Jesus, when he gets baptized, I love this sequence of how it rolls out in verse 11. Again, a voice from heaven came down and said, you are my beloved son with I'm well pleased. If you know your Bible, you know the ministry of Jesus is some of his first public sighting, right? And he comes out and he hears the voice you are my beloved son with who I'm well pleased. Jesus, what has Jesus done at this point in his public ministry? He's done nothing, no miracle. He hasn't healed anybody. He hasn't preached a word. Because a lot of us, we base our worth and our value on what we do. If I do this thing right, if I do that thing right, then I will be loved, I'll be accepted, I'll... And Jesus doesn't do that. He says, no, it's based on who I am, who the Father says I am. 
And the way he hears that voice is he goes up and he gets up early in the morning and he gets away and he listens in prayer. The next scene right after the baptism, he's led into the desert and you know what voices he hears? Prove yourself, Jesus. Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, turn these stones into bread. Jesus, prove your worth. And what does Jesus do? Mm -mm. No, he quotes scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy back to the enemy three times when he's tempted because he is rooted in who he is in the Father's love for him. That's so practical, men and women. We have to understand this, like your job, your family, Everything about your life, if you're not rooted and anchored in that love, you're going to try and find it somewhere else because we're dependent people. At our core, we're made as humans dependent. I don't care if you believe in God or not. You are dependent for air to breathe. You are dependent for food and water to live. You are dependent to sleep. We are dependent people. So where are we putting our dependence? Have to put it. And the Father, in knowing you are loved. Because again, if we don't anchor ourselves in that, we're just going to run around and try to get that love from everybody else. And you know what? You shouldn't have to give me that love. You're incapable of giving me that love. I can only get it from the Father. The only reason... We have have access to that love. It's because of what Jesus does for us. Because him living the perfect life and dying on the cross and raising and beating death gives us now access to the Father. But that access comes with a bowed knee and a surrendered life. To say, I want to walk with Jesus. It's not for everybody. It's God initiating that with his children. I love how Tim Keller says it as we close. Look at what he says about this. He says, no, we know God will answer us when we call. Because one terrible day he did not answer Jesus when he called. Jesus' prayers We're given the rejection that we sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that he merits. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Spirit, we need to be reminded constantly that we are in a battle God, we need to be constantly reminded that our worth, our identity is anchored in who you say we are. I pray that we would be men and women of prayer, that we would make it a necessity to get up, spend time with you, that we would hear that voice. You can only do that for us by the power of your spirit. Would you do it? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.